Hello and welcome to the 13th episode of the Rethink Wireless podcast, where our wireless watch team talks about some of the week's news and developments. I'm Luke Brown, wireless analyst, and with me now are our principal analysts, Caroline Gabriel and Phil Hunter. Good morning. Hello. In today's episode, Caroline will discuss the role of open source in the network markets, and Phil will take a look at some 5G service performance reports from around the world. Um, let's start with you, Caroline. We often write about open standards and interfaces here at Wireless Watch, but today the focus is on open source RAN components. Um, what is the idea behind introducing open source technology into the RAN, and what does the US's National Science Foundation have to do with it? Um, yes, we sort of um, started focusing on, on this issue um, in particular because of the latest expansion of the National Science Foundation's um, 5G test beds, uh, of which they have many, but uh, a particular one that's called Powder, um, which is based in Utah, but is available to universities and other um, uh, innovators throughout the United States. The, um, they've been building a sort of fully open source platform to support um, 4G and 5G RAN. And the, uh, from an academic point of view, the point of using open source is um, partly because they can access, uh, of course, all the key code and so on uh, for free. So it reduces the cost, but also it broadens, maximizes the innovation base. Um, anybody can participate in an open source community so they get the maximum input from different uh, people who may be working in this area and may come up with ideas that perhaps wouldn't appear in a a kind of commercial R&D environment. So they've been building um, various open source platforms and uh, have talked uh, just in the last couple of weeks um, about the challenges of deploying a RAN using only open source components. They said um, achieving a mobile broadband network um, in open source has been by far the hardest element that uh, that they've done, and they've they've done they've used open source in other areas in um, cloud infrastructure and software and devices and so on. So um, so it was interesting to hear them talk about the challenges because this isn't unique to that testbed. It's been a topic of conversation um, in the RAN for a long time. I mean, at least a, a decade. We saw in the um, in the 90s, in particular, and, and onwards, um, open source becoming very dominant in the computer industry, and um, sparked a, a massive change in the economics of that industry and uh, the, the way that um, that users bought and consumed hardware and software. And there's always been a, a, a conversation about whether the same. Uh, trend eventually would happen in telecom networks and particularly in mobile networks. Um, so far, that's been pretty slow. Um, as the uh, as the powder testbed has pointed out, there, there's a lot of challenges to it. Um, but it's it's an interesting discussion at a time when the whole industry is very very focused on open networks. And of course, open networks don't have to be open source; they just have to be available for anybody to license and and to use. Uh, but there is a, um, a real debate uh, that's becoming um, quite significant now about what's the right balance in the 5G market between uh, just being open um, and being open source. And it's not really an, an either or answer. It is a question of balance. Um, and there are activities on both sides um, and, and each has their has their challenges. 
who would be some um, maybe of the more traditional advocates for open source um, technology in the run? Um, what's been their impact so far? Um, the sort of argument for open source in the RAN is, is similar to open source anywhere else, is that it does um, greatly reduce cost uh, because by its nature, most things are available, at least the core components are available free. Um, that lowers barriers to entry both for companies who want to develop equipment or software and those who want to deploy networks. So there's a real democratization of the industry that open source can um, can set off and so we um, that that's sort of the argument for it the argument against it is that companies who've developed technology may find it hard to monetize that and make a revenue from it um, in the compute world we saw the emergence of monetization via um, added value software platforms to so extra software and services being layered on top of the open source platforms uh, we saw the emergence of companies like Red Hat, who became extremely um, you know, skilled at, at monetizing open source platforms. But it took a long time to develop those models and for the industry, for the users to adapt to them. I mean, it's probably still an ongoing process. So that's something that um, perhaps when the uh, 5G world is going through so much change anyway, that might be sort of a step too far um, in terms of the business models. But there are certainly... Um, there are certainly stakeholders who would like to see more um, open source uh, so that they can participate better in the value chain. Um, some of them are researchers. Are, um, I mean, governments um, are often very interested in open source because it, um, it enables them to expand their platforms more quickly. It's a much more difficult proposition for um, real commercial players um, in, in the RAN. Um, but you know, but we see we see companies uh, joining in activities. Um, obviously, in other parts of the mobile network, open source is very significant. I mean, perhaps the best example is Android, uh, which is uh, has an open source base to it at least, um, and is is as we know dominant in mobile handsets. And there's a lot of other open source technology uh, that has been contributed into bit more on, on the network side and the cloud side, of course, by companies like Google, but also by lots of small innovators. But if you're looking specifically at the RAN and the base stations, um, there are groups, there's an open source strand to the ORAN Alliance, and they've got a, an open software community, um, which has a lot of projects that don't find their way into the main ORAN specifications, but are still adding to the innovation, to the base of knowledge, um, and potentially the technologies that, that people could adopt. There are groups like the Open Air Interface um, uh, Alliance, which, uh, as its name suggests, is developing a fully um, open source 5G um, air interface, which has been um, adopted or, or um, adapted, at least, um, by some other groups. So lots of activity, but most of it has not um, sort of grabbed the mainstream um, strand of development of uh, the 5G RAN. And of course, a lot of what might trigger it is the migration to virtualized RAN, which um, uh, which may or may not be open in future. We say so far, open RAN largely just means open interfaces between different elements that uh, that anybody can can access, um, and the use of um, common hardware, common uh, cloud infrastructure underneath. Um, none of that is specifically open source, but it could be. 
you mention um, the new players such as Google. Um, who else is there? Well, why are they um, entering this space and what impact are they having? I think the impact of the big players contributing into open source processes is that it gets um, it gets the results of their internal R&D resources, which are considerable, out to a wider community. Uh, so that people who could never develop that sort of technology themselves wouldn't have the resources can can access it and then start to add their own uh, their their own extra value or their own extensions and so on. So I mean, Google contributes to all kinds of open source initiatives, um, but so do some of the other um, cloud companies um, like Meta. Uh, but also in the mobile world itself, I mean, AT and T is a good example of a company that's done a lot of in-house R and D, and then where it believes that some of what it's done could contribute to um, kick-starting or broadening an ecosystem, it will make it will open that up. Um, I mean, uh, ORAM is partially based on code that was originally developed by AT&T uh, under a project called XRAM. Um, and that was put into, initially put into an open source forum. It was then um, fed into the ORAM Alliance, which, as I said, is primarily not open source. Um, but it's a good example of, um, you know, some code that was developed by a big team in AT&T. This is very advanced development that suddenly is, is open to everyone in the ecosystem. Uh, but it's worth noting that AT&T's own um, VRAN and OpenRAN, although undoubtedly using bits of what they developed in XRAN, is not is not um, directly based on ORAN. They've got all their um, they've got their own extensions and their platform will look quite unique to them because they need it to be differentiated. So there's a sort of myth that if you use open source, everything turns out the same. In fact, one of the great challenges of open source is that it can become very fragmented if only the very basic elements are common um, and, and open and everybody else then develops their own platform around that. Um, it doesn't necessarily um, end up in something that's very consistent. So a lot of Companies that are wary of open source would argue that actually an open um, platform that isn't fully open source can both be more easily monetized by vendors, um, but also there's an element of governance and control to make sure that it sort of remains uh, reasonably consistent across all the implementations. Um, would we would we say um, would we add any other challenges um, facing open source here? Are there maybe past examples where open source went horribly wrong that we can learn from? I don't know about horribly wrong, but um, the the main problem with many open source initiatives has been fragmentation. Um, we saw that um, before we had Linux. I mean, Linux is perhaps one of the best most successful examples of an open source platform that has provided a common base for all kinds of operating systems, including Android, including most um, mobile network um, software systems. So it, so there's an example of open source technology that is actually, actually you know, inherent in mobile networks as it is in many other things. Um, but before Linux, there was sort of a, a very long time, many years of trying to develop open source um, compute operating systems, which um, were uh, extremely fragmented. They they either um, got sort of taken over by individual vendors who, who then developed um, implementations that were incompatible with each other, or they were taken over by smaller innovators who didn't have the market weight 
to to get their particular implementation to any sort of commercial impact. So it was fine for little projects or hobbies, but didn't um, change the industry in any way. So those are always the risks with open source is in, in the commercial world, once you get away from academia and, um, and sort of hobby um, uh, developments, you need to have something that drives um, commonality in an open source environment. Um, and that even means a lot of consensus around um, a particular implementation, as, as did to some extent happen with Linux. Or you need a very large company or group of companies who just put their support behind it so it becomes de facto. Um, open source in the compute environment really took off when IBM sort of changed from being a very proprietary company to um, to supporting open source models and working out how to turn them to its own advantage. Um, a similar driver hasn't really happened in the mobile world. There are big companies who are interested in open source, but I mean, about 10 years ago, we saw um, some executives from Huawei, for instance, demonstrating a fully open source RAN. It was extremely interesting to see that being developed by Huawei, which is a company that hasn't participated enormously in open source um, initiatives. Um, but there they were. It was a demo, but it was actually an open source RAN. Every single component taken from some open source initiative somewhere in the world, including the chips. So, you know, it can be done, but it didn't obviously take off. Huawei wasn't going to commercialise it. They were just making a point um, that, that it can be done. Um, but there hasn't been a company that really um, either contributed all their technology or, or really just supported an open source platform that had the the impact to to bring the industry behind it. Looking at looking at timeframes now, um, obviously if we have giants, like I think you mentioned the piece, um, Intel um, is being looked at um, maybe another um, player that could catalyze that development. But looking at timeframes now, um, do we even have time for, for open source to properly enter even a virtualized RAM um, world now? Um, yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, I suppose the first point is, is it desirable to have an open source run? I'm not sure that this is an objective for the industry. It's, a, as I say, it's an interesting discussion point, but there are definitely rights and wrongs, pros and cons. Um, so, so it may be that, uh, that it, it isn't really um, a key objective. But if it were, I'm not sure that the timing is what matters. There is a long time in the evolution of VRAN ahead. It's a very early stage. The huge majority of operators won't do it for quite a few years. So if there were a few vendors that decided um, to to really try to reshape the industry, um, they it would be good timing in the sense that it's really the beginning of a wave um, of, of virtualized RAN. Um, or if you're big enough companies, you could think about it as a 6G um, platform that you're, you know, you're going to try and push to reality by, say, the end of the decade, which would be fine in terms of timing to um, to try to get support for a new platform. So I think the question is whether that will happen. Um, companies, small companies that believe in the open source model in the RAN, believe that initiative needs to come from um, a company like Intel. Um, because the one of the challenges in the RAN, as opposed to some other um, part areas of technology is so much of it is very specialized hardware 
and you know how much can you would, would we ever have a fully open source community for the hardware elements the more something becomes software based the more open it is to being open source and so the vran obviously has a, a major abstracted software component compared to a traditional ran but um but when you start looking at the chips and also at the radios and so on um, it all becomes a lot more difficult to see where the economics of open ran lie and you know we have to remember that we can think of servers being you know hugely um sort of uh, an awful lot of open source technology going on there not just linux but um a lot of the platforms on top but the the chips are still primarily coming from one company um with its own architecture I mean, you can license intel's architecture but it certainly isn't open source obviously um uh, and a lot of companies who make hardware uh, and even those who make software um find well that that's their innovation is developing um that actual base technology so if they can't charge money for that um either directly or or through uh, licensing it's hard for them to kind of see how they would monetize they need to develop a whole new model that involves value added services and so on and and, and that's a, that means big companies rethinking what they do so um so i do think it would take a long time but i think if there was the will and if it was very clear that this was a um a good objective there would be a big company that would do it i think the problem at the moment is that every nobody's quite sure whether it is a good idea and even the biggest supporters of open ran um sort of often think well actually no let's just stick with a licensed open platform um i mean oran um is one example as i say it's got an open source strand which sort of opens it up to extra innovation without them having to adopt that as their whole model there are lots of different open source processes so even choosing the right one for a particular type of technology is quite complicated um telecom infra project which is obviously a, you know, a very uh, significant um open networks group as well um they started being quite big, um geared towards being an open source um organization and meta that founded them contributed some of its technology uh, in an open source way but it quite quickly realized that if it wanted to attract lots of vendors um it was probably going to have to also have a um a licensing um process so that companies would not be deterred by the thought of in effect giving away their technology that they've spent years developing so it's it's quite a hard conundrum and while people may call on on intel or or other ericsson or whoever to kind of get behind the open source model they don't have to see a big reason to do that for their own um business but also uh, to believe that that's what will really expand the total market and i think jury's out on that at the moment um thank you for that caroline let's get to you now phil you had a look at 5g performance around the world today um let's start in the far west what metrics were reported and how can we understand them um how do the us operators compare to one another yes but it's it, uh, thank you luke yes it's a good idea to start in the far west because um well that's where the headlines were generated this week anyway with the figures released from um open signal and um, also there's been the most sort of um consistent record of um measurement of of 5g speeds and other aspects of performance in the USA than probably anywhere else although having said that the whole world has is now being fairly well surveyed 
And, you, and it's not really, I mean, comparing sort of headline bit rates and so on between operators is not really something that um, wireless watch sort of goes into all that much. Because, you know, they can be rather misleading, as we will discuss the data. But um, the reason I took a look or we took a look this week um, um, is is, is largely to actually sort of um, look a little bit beneath the bonnet and and see what actually is being compared and sort of try and point out some of the shortcomings in these results as well. So in the case of the US, we had the, we had the latest results from actually two um, mobile analytics firms. One of them was Open Signal, which is um, based in Boston, Massachusetts, and, and Ookla in London is another. But, I mean, we've, we also consider that there's another firm also based in London, Point Topic, who is data we also look at from time to time. Anyway, um, the main story in the USA is that T-Mobile US has been consistently in the lead for 5G speeds and availability over the last year or so at least. And um, that that hasn't changed much. And the, and the reason they've been doing well is, is because of their sort of big holdings of mid-band spectrum, which sort of optimizes the balance between sort of coverage and bit rate. And um, so in the, in, the late, in the latest figures, we find that 5G download speed was measured at 186.3 megabits per second, for example. That's over the period September to December. And we had Verizon second at 84.9 megabits per second and AT&T third on 71.1 megabits per second. Now, um, T-Mobile also came top for availability and reach, which are sort of two um, complementary measures. And you have to be a little bit care careful how you define those. Um, and availability is a measure is a percentage of the proportion of time 5G users of a service spend connected to a 5G service, as opposed to falling back to 4G or lower, which we've, we all notice happens <laughs> time to time. And reach is then the average proportion of locations 5G users have been able to connect to a 5G network out of total locations they have visited during the, the time. And that's tended to be expressed as a figure out of 10. But um, as I will explain, these measures are somewhat are somewhat in the eye of the beholder for various reasons. And um, but just finishing on the US figures, um, um, it may even well be aware that T-Mobile's competitors, Verizon and AT&T, invested heavily on mid-band, C-band spectrum in the 2021 auction in an attempt to reduce that deficit. And that is just beginning to pay off. So the UCLA figures show that the gap over sort of um, uh, performance, uh, certainly sort of um, certainly over sort of um, download bit rate has narrowed just a little bit in the latest period. And and I think we, we should be able to predict that that gap will narrow further as um, the C-band comes more into play over those two networks. Um. So is is but, I mean these these figures are are quite dis disparate, aren't they? I mean they're, what, what did we say, a hundred and eighty six to eighty four? That's that's more than double. Why, 
why that wide gap? Uh, well, I, I'm, as I said, it's, it, 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 it largely comes down to spectrum in this case. Um, you know, because I mean, if you if, if you look at five G, it's a very spread over a very wide band of potential spectrum, low band below one gigabit, uh, gigahertz, and sort of um, millimeter wave bands going up into the sort of ten and twenties, thirties, and forties, and so. And um, as, as a rule of thumb, middle uh, millimeter wave, the higher frequencies boost bit rates further, but uh, and, and, and at least until you've got beam forming coming into play, only fairly close to the base station. So it's at the expense of reach and the variability of those two measures. Um, and, and conversely, the sort of lower band gives you great, great reach and availability, but not necessarily the high, the five G level bit rates. So you know, some um, networks that have actually boosted, they've got very wide five G coverage. Um, you can then say that it's not really. Some people say it's not really five G at all. The actual performances aren't much different from the previous four G services. And of course, but then you've got the middle bands which sort of optimize that balance. I mean, they don't give quite the same speeds as millimeter wave, but over a much wider area. So that's the reason here. But if, if you're also talking about disparity in results, there's another. There's a lot of other factors. That the, it, it, I mean, it, uh, un, unlike fixed lines, mobile performance depends on so many factors. You know, distance from base station, the, the profile of the user. You know, are you sort of spending most of your time at home? Are you spending most of the time in the train? Are you often in sort of urban canyons and so on? And, those will all affect these individual measures of um, performance. And then there's also, um, in terms perhaps not so much of the um, bit rates, but but these firms also measure user experiences as reported. And um, they sort of um, vary enormously between the actual application you're using. You know, in, for some, if, if you're just accessing email, you, you don't really care whether it's 5G or 4G, really. You know. But on the other hand, if you're streaming... HD or ultra HD video, you really do notice a difference, and for big file downloads as well. And then for gaming, if um, you've got a good 5G connection, you do probably notice the difference over latency. You've got quite a few things to unpack there. Um, let's move east. Um, what's the situation like in the UK? Um, what should we watch out for in the results here? Yeah, but uh, I mean, I mean, it's sort of um, much the same. But again, it sort of illustrates sort of um, discrepancies over measurement in this case. But I, 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 I sort of picked up on. I mean, we're comparing feedback from two measurement firms here: London-based Point Topic and um, also Ookla. Well, or it's a, it's a subsidiary called Root Metrics um, in this case, and. Um, the two both both of these measured maximum download speeds in 2022 for all four of the principal mobile operators. That's EEE, which is part of BT. We've got three. We've got Vodafone and O2, which are now sort of in a, in a, in a, in a, in a Virgin Media. And the results are almost identical between the two. And the two firms measured almost the same for three. 473 megabits per second download for point topic and 478.1 megabits per second from 
group metrics. Remarkable agreement, really, given differences in measurement. But then, in the case of EE, um, we, we, we got 753 megabits per second from point topic and 388.4 megabits per second from group metrics, I think it was. So that's a, uh, and, and then when you came to the other two operators, there were differences that were quite significant, but not as big as that, you know, around about 25, 30%. Um, and it's, it, it's hard to entirely put a finger on that, but it does seem that um, group metrics were sampling in the London area in the case of EE, where before, obviously you've got different factors affecting performance, you know, depending on where users are. You've, on the one hand, you might have poor performance in uh, in areas that are dense or where you've got sort of um, tall buildings nearby and so on. So I think there we sort of saw, I mean, that's really just um, illustrates in a sense the <laughs> vagaries of um, measurement. So that if, say, you, you took for gospel one firm's measurements, you'd then find that well, they might actually not re reflect the reality you are getting on the ground. Yeah, you might be, really might be following a false prophet then. Indeed, absolutely, absolutely. Um, what about the situation um, more globally? Do we have any any standout countries who are the top performers? Yes, yes. I mean, yeah, I mean, we do. I mean, probably. Um, I mean, the global picture has been also fairly consistent when you look at the country level though i mean um, uh, the same sort of firm seem to come out the same sort of countries sorry <laughs> to come uh, come out on top i mean south korea has long been held out as a some paragon of virtue here i mean also dating back into the um fixed broadband they uh, uh, you know they were sort of um, always scored very highly for sort of access to fiber and so on and um, the other there's a group of countries that all score well then uh, the, the rich the, the sort of um, oil rich countries if you like of the uh, Middle East the UAE Qatar Saudi Arabia and Kuwait have all been consistently high and um, perhaps they have populations that are, they've got cities that are quite well designed modern cities and populations that tend to be concentrated there they've got the money to invest in sort of good fiber rollout to back it up and so on and so um it's not surprising in fact in Euclid's most recently reported median 5g download so south korea was top on 516.5 megabits per second uae uae second on 511 but um there was a nice little wrinkle here with, uh, um is that we, we do we have observed that um some, a number of what you might call, well, certainly less wealthy nations, developing nations, if you like, um, have been sort of coming up the charts when they start deploying, deploying 5G, which gives perhaps some optimism that 5G might be a little bit of a level, if not entirely. And we sort of saw that um, Bulgaria was rising fast. It was third place in that survey. I just mentioned that 450 megabits per second. And we've also seen other countries of the sort of Asia-Pacific particularly coming up. Malaysia is a very fast riser, came up to second for peak and median download speeds and first place for 5G upload speeds. So, um, I, mean, I mean, again, there's vagaries over the measurement, but however you look at it, it's a very good performance. And we've seen other countries coming up well too, including the Philippines, 
and Chile, for example, are two examples that we picked out in the, as well as Indonesia and uh, Romania. So, would you say that that that's a trend that we see emerging now? That this kind of that um, emerging economies. Uh, yeah, I hope so. I mean, um, I mean, obviously, in these countries, five years only been rolled out in a few areas. So um, we're talking perhaps about some of the lower hanging fruit. So I think I think we sort of the jury might still be out. But I think it, I mean it is the case, or it has already been shown to be the case that mobile connectivity is often the saving grace in also quite remote developing areas in in parts of sub-Saharan Africa, for example. And um, on the back of that, we've seen fixed wireless access as a way of providing a sort of sort of sort of good, good broadband fixed connectivity to homes and premises. So we're going to be seeing certainly sort of more of that. And um, so yes, I think that's probably about it. Um, yeah. Um, do we? I think you mentioned also some some rather specialized um, uh, kind of countries um, exploring a, a niche or excelling in 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 one particular um, area. Do you think we'll we'll continue to see that as well? Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, I think I think there we were talking about sort of specific use cases, and um, I mean, I know that um, you do. I mean, that again should have shown some interesting disparities. I mean. Um, Sweden, for example, was ranked one by one of the open signal, I think, for 5G video experience. But when it came to gaming experience, um, it came 12th. And then but you saw this reversed in some other cases. South Korea was top for gaming, but 13th for 5G video. It's still a good, decent position. But um, and, and you saw a few others, anomalies like that, at Taiwan, for example, being good for video experience and less good for gaming. And I, I think it's because, uh, I mean, if you've got the kind of layout which is 5G, um, that you've got sort of delivering high bit rates, down, high download rates, but perhaps um, um, not quite so good for latency. So, uh, you see, uh, I mean, video streaming, especially non-live, is really almost entirely a function of your of download speeds. I mean, live, obviously, not quite so much. And if you're doing video conferencing, then you do need quite low latency. Um, but gaming, particularly... Um, to have a sort of consistent competitive experience, you've got to have very low latency. So um, I'm not saying that operators perhaps specialise in one or the other, but they certainly sort of come out trumps more for one or the other at this stage. Yeah, it's difficult to deploy a network that can already fulfil all of these kind of high um, or kind of all of these advanced use cases, isn't it? It certainly is. It certainly is. But, you know, I mean, obviously if you've got... 5G, especially in mid-band, and then um, and also if you've got enough density, that that also helps. No, not too much contention. Thank you for that as well, Phil. Um, this is it for Rethink Wireless this week. Um, I want to thank everyone for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Wireless Watch podcast, and of course, we hope you'll join us again next week as well. Thank you, and it's bye bye from me. Thanks and goodbye. And bye bye from me.